Today, uh, we're back in chapter 21 of the Confession of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. We're jumping back into the questions, which we began to uh, address three weeks ago, I guess, um, which is how the Christian is to react to a lawful authority, and by lawful authority, I mean an authority instituted by God. There are many, civil government, uh, the church, the local church as a whole has authority given by God. Elders in the church have uh, authority within their own scope. Um, husbands over wives, and I would say husbands with wives over children. Um, there are all kinds of lawful authorities instituted by God. But how is the Christian to react when a lawful authority gives a commandment or makes a law or a rule that is at best imperfect and at worst unjust and at the very worst tyrannical? If you remember, I said that there are three different scenarios, um, and these aren't really, (laughs) the difficulty is these are not nice and neat scenarios. This is a spectrum of things, okay, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But there are three different kinds of scenarios, more or less, um, and I think there are basically three different kinds of responses, although we could say there are four responses, but we'll say three for now. It all depends on the circumstances. First, we, we talked about last time I was with you, what do you do about a law when maybe it's not the best? It's not, it's not you, you don't totally agree with it. Um, but it's also not really an unjust law. You wouldn't go that far. How, how do you deal with a law in, in that scenario? Um, now, again, just to be clear, when we're talking about a lawful authority making a law, uh, in these kinds of cases, we're talking about things that are indifferent, okay? Meaning they are not explicitly laid down in God's word, Okay? Um, You always have to render obedience if it's God's law. So we're we're not talking about that yet. Um, You always have to obey um, or or avoid something if it's God's law. So when we talk about whether you render obedience, it's it's concerning um, a commandment that is something indifferent, something that God has either not forbade or not commanded or maybe not even really spoken to at all, right? He's not bound the conscience in that regard. There are, uh, there are things, we, we have seen that lawful authorities can institute laws concerning things indifferent. And as I said last time we were together, when these are wholesome, they are to be obeyed, um, even if you don't entirely agree with it, okay? Let me give you an example of a wholesome law that is to be obeyed, though it's not exclusively in the Word of God. An example that I gave of this uh, when I visited Van, I I did Sunday school there on a brief introduction to conscience. Let's say a father in our church makes a household rule that his teenage children must be up by 9 a.m. on Saturdays, okay? Now, technically, is that a thing indifferent or is that a thing commanded by God? Who says commanded by God? Raise your hand. Who says indifferent? It's a thing indifferent. It's a thing indifferent. You are not necessarily sinning if you sleep in past 9 a.m. Now, 
you might be sinning. There might be some circumstances which contribute to sin. Just be, I, I had to explain this in Van. Just because a thing is indifferent doesn't mean you can't sin with it, okay? Drinking wine or not drinking wine is not commanded by God. You have liberty to do so uh, or to not do so, but you can still sin with wine, okay? So just keep that in mind. However, someone is not necessarily sinning if you sleep in past 9 a.m., thank the Lord. There are some general rules in the Word of God, um, about not being a sluggard, other principles that are broad, but it's not technically a sin to sleep in past 9 a.m. It's a thing indifferent. And yet, the father having the authority given by God to make wholesome rules for his household and for his children, it is within his prerogative, I would say, to make such a rule. And so, although waking up at 9 a.m. technically is a thing indifferent, yet it ought to be obeyed by those children in that household. And 9 a.m. is pretty easy. That's pretty generous. They probably wake up at 7 in Reuben's household. I don't know what time he has them up. I know he's up very, very early. If a child were to willfully disobey their father, right? He kind of comes in and says, hey, guys, time to get up. It's 9 a.m. And then he says some kind of like thing that all dads say, like, you know, the early bird catches a worm or some just... He looks in his Rolodex of dad's sayings, and he says it as he knocks on the door. And they were to just say, I don't care, I'm going to sleep in. That would be sin. That would be a willful disobedience because God has instituted that authority, even though it's technically a matter uh, indifferent. Now, let's say, let's say, um, wait, hold on. I haven't looked at these notes since Monday. Give me a second. Okay, now we considered the scenario last time of a, what is overall a wholesome law, but you may not entirely agree with it, okay? To wake up at 9 a.m., that's, that's a pretty wholesome law on Saturdays, right? It's given for a good reason. The father maybe doesn't want his teenage children to be gluttonous in terms of sleep, to be sluggards. That's a good reason, right? What if we didn't entirely agree with the timing of it, though. What if you disagree with the lawful authority that they're taking the best course of action? You're not sure. However, it's still overall a wholesome law. Let's say another father in the church wants his teenage children to wake up at 8 a.m. on Saturdays. 8 a.m. Is that okay? What do you guys think? Is that lawful? Who doesn't think that's lawful? (laughs) The teenager's like, oh, it's not lawful, dude. Right? I think it's okay. I think it's a little bit stricter. Right? I don't think the father is sinning, though. What if he wants his children to wake up at 7 a.m. on Saturdays? What do you think about that? That's fine? Who Who thinks maybe that's not the best? You do? Maybe a little strict? Would you say the father's sinning, though? I wouldn't say he's sinning. I wouldn't say he's sinning. Personally, I would think, I think you can still achieve the same good end. It's one thing for your child to sleep in it to 2 p.m., right? It's another 
for them to wake up at 9 or 8 in the morning. I think that's, that's good. Does 7 a.m. still overall tend, though, towards that good end of teaching the children to not be sluggards? I think so. I don't know that I would, uh, I would have that in my own household, right? Um, because, honestly, I'd be such, such a hypocrite. I would have to wake up to wake them up at 7 and then go back to bed. But um, uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily the best. I think there could be, you could still show a little bit of room. I can tell you this, though. In such a case, I would still tell the child in that household, you still ought to obey your, pa- your father. They say, well, Pastor Ryan, don't you think that that's, you know, do you agree with that? I'd say, well, personally, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but he's your father given by God. And you may think that's a little bit strict. You might think it's not the best course of action, but overall, it's still wholesome. It's still lawful. And guess what? You can grow up one day and move out of the house and tell your own kids when they want to wake up, right? You can, you can have a, a different way of thinking about it. I would take that as, in miniature, a picture of how the Christian ought to respond with other lawful authorities when, overall, we might not be convinced it's the best course of action, but it's still a wholesome law. We are to render obedience, right? We saw this in the language that Paul uses when, often when he's dealing with those who have to submit to authorities. He uses a, kind of an allness of language, Obey in all things. Submit in all things. And I think he's, he's getting at the point, even when you're not entirely in agreement, that that's maybe the best course of action, right? From a practical standpoint, we saw how you kind of have to have some sort of obedience on wholesome laws, even if you don't agree, just for the very functioning of society. Um, I've often thought about this, you know, couples who are egalitarians, um, the husband is not the head, the wife just ooh, hates the word submit. I'm like, how do you do things? How do you move, move past an impasse, right? And, and I'm sure they say, well, how do you, they, they'll say things like, well, how do you move past things with your friends? And I'm like, okay, I guess. Um, but still, it's good that there is an authority, and at times that, that is given so that things just don't break down, Right? Um, And that's what we looked at in the first category. Laws that are generally wholesome, but that you may not think are the best or the wisest. And I'm just picking on Reuben because he's so lovable. And, you know, anyway. Well, what we're gonna look at today is the second category, which I would say we're speaking of laws that are not just like, "Mm, I don't really agree with you on that, but it's still overall wise, still overall wholesome, but laws that are no longer wholesome. They no longer tend toward a good end for which they were supposedly made. Maybe they're not necessarily evil in themselves, but they're still not wholesome. They They don't generally tend toward a good end. I would say in such cases... We are venturing into the taking away of liberties, though I would not quite yet call this tyranny, okay? Um, And I get it. I get it. Certain tyrannies start off slow, okay? And they test out the water. I get that. I think we've all seen that a lot lately in, in, in the world and in the government. They test out the waters. But you have to be careful of jumping and calling, like, 
full-blown 1776, baby. Like, let's do it. There's a place for that. We'll talk about that later, okay? I don't want to yet call this tyranny, but we'll say, you might say it's perhaps depending on the scale, tends towards tyranny, but it's not quite there. It's just not a wholesome law. In this second category, I would say when they are no longer wholesome laws, a Christian does not have to obey. They do not have to obey. There may be a case in which a Christian might choose to obey for the sake of the gospel, right? There, there may be a way, I, I think that is somewhat uh, what is in view, for example, in Matthew 5.41. Uh, Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Um, that's a taking away of liberties right there, forcing someone to go. What Christ is talking about <clears throat> is a practice that was common by the Romans and by the Persians beforehand of forcing the local populace to carry burdens for them, okay? You, you got commandeered, not just your donkey. And in fact, we see an example of this in Matthew 27, 32 with Simon of Cyrene. Remember, cross is, uh, Christ is carrying his cross. He keeps falling down. It says, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, They compelled him, it's the same word, compelled this man to carry his cross. Some have suggested that uh, maybe it was a legal statute that the minimum for which the authorities could compel someone to carry a burden was one mile. So Christ is saying, if someone compels you to carry it, uh, go one mile, go two. I don't know that there's any evidence of that. These the, the compulsion of carrying burdens in the empire was technically legal. Uh, I don't know if they could make Roman citizens do it. That's another, another question. Um, but they could do it for those in the empire. Um, there were supposed to be uh, reimbursements. There were supposed to be fees that you were supposed to be paid. But it was often abused by Roman soldiers. I think that's what happened with Simon of Cyrene. I don't think they paid him. It's just the Romans, you know, with a sword. Hey, carry the burden or I kill you kind of thing. That's a significant taking away of, of a liberty, I would say. Um, not in that context, is not talking about a spiritual liberty, but a civil liberty. And yet Christ says in the context, if someone tells you to go, they force you to go one mile, go two miles. And I think, I think the, what Christ is getting at um, is doing that for the sake of the kingdom. You do that with a Roman pagan who doesn't know Christ, and you go, I'll go two. I can go three. And they go, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Well, my Lord Jesus is amazing, and he's told me to show the love of God to others. Like, what? Uh, what? That's how the gospel spreads. I think in some cases like that, it's okay um, to, to render, a, uh, render obedience, um, even though it might not be wholesome, okay? All right. However... A Christian does not have to, does not have to obey in this second category. And Reformed writers are very clear that in such a case, it is not contempt, nor is it necessary, necessarily scandal to not obey. Remember, we talked about that last time. Those are the two reasons often given by Reformed writers why you should render obedience to a lawful authority. Because if you don't, you could be guilty of contempt of their authority, or you could cause unnecessary scandal, okay? 
However, Reformed writers are also clear, if it's not wholesome, if it doesn't tend towards a good end, it's not contempt to not obey, nor is it necessarily scandal. This second category of laws was discussed a ton, especially in England after the Reformation, because you had on the one side the bishops of the Anglican Church who were commanding things that were indifferent, um, but they were commanding them uh, as though they had to be obeyed, right? However, these things were not wholesome. They weren't necessarily sinful, but they also didn't tend toward the good end which they were purported to do. Perhaps they weren't the worst thing in the world, but they were requiring them. And it was particularly the Puritans who would not submit to these things. And I imagine if, if the bishops had suggested or asked, you might have had more Puritans who did it, but because they commanded them and made them not as a thing indifferent, the Puritans wouldn't do it. I'll give you an example of this. Um, you guys ever heard of Bob Godfrey, Robert Godfrey? He was the president of my seminary, uh, godly man, a scholar, um, just a very pious individual. And I heard a story once where um, a younger professor told us he had gone, so they, they, he's, uh, he, he's in uh, Dutch Reformed churches, the United Reformed churches, okay? And they went to go preach Dr. Bob was going to preach at another Dutch Reformed church in California. And there, the minister, uh, they call him a domini. Who's ever heard of that? You guys? You're not that Dutch. All right. Um, a pastor, like the local reverend uh, in an old school Dutch Reformed church, is called a domini. It's just what they call them. And the domini there, uh, I think he always wore a black robe when he preached, right? The, the Genevan robe. It's not, you still see Presbyterians do this today. Um, and uh, Dr. Bob didn't normally wear those when he preached. And the congregation or the deacons or the domini, whoever was there, I think he was sick or something, like said, we'd like you to wear this when you preach. And Dr. Godfrey said, would you like me to, like you're telling me I have to, or are you asking me to? And the younger professor said to me, or said not to me, but to the class. He said, he's such a Puritan that if they had said, we're telling you to do this, he would not have done it. But if they asked, and I think they did, uh, he would do it, right? Because in such a case, you are therefore rendering blind obedience, right, in, in such a matter, and that's to be avoided. And that was a huge issue uh, among the Puritans. Um, the, the bishops are saying, you must do these things um, and we have authority to command them. They were often the, like the same three or four things. Um, doing the sign of the cross, they just call it crossing, kneeling, um, and wearing what's called a surplus. Who knows what a surplus is? It's not when you have extra. A surplus is, if you've ever seen a Roman Catholic priest in mass, and they wear a very frilly kind of white gown, um, that, that is a surplus, and there were Anglicans who did it. Uh, they hadn't done away with that yet. And so the Puritans were like, all this, that's Rome. We're not going to do that. And you guys are commanding these things, and they're nowhere in the Word of God, and there's no really good reason why we should do this. And the bishops were saying, well, you just need to do it because we're the bishops. All that to say, 
This second category of laws is written a ton about, um, especially in Scotland and in England. We have a repository. The first thing we see is that the Reformers and the Puritans were clear that disobedience in such a case, even though it be a lawful authority, is not contempt, is not contempt. For example, the Reformed theologian, uh, maybe not heard of him as much, Johann Heinrich Alsted, Alsted, he says, human laws are not binding when they can be omitted without hindering the end for which they are made, without offending others, and without contempt for the legislator. So notice the last two, one was scandal and contempt, but he also says, if you're also not hindering the end for which the law was made, right, you, can, you don't have to obey, and it's not contempt, it's not sin. Now think of these three things with me here for a second. First, human laws can be omitted without hindering the end for which they were made. That's a very helpful way to think about what makes a law wholesome or not wholesome. Let's say a certain law, and I'm sure all these laws in the recent years will come to your mind, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, let's say a certain law is made supposedly for the preservation of life. Okay? That's a good end, the preservation of life. And I would even say that that is one of the reasons for which we have civil government, to, to protect life, to, to punish those who, um, who murder life. I, I, I think that's good, right? But if your disobedience doesn't hinder that end, if it in no way actually endangers life, they would say, well, then it's not really a wholesome law, and in such a case, you don't have to obey that. Furthermore, it is not enough for a lawful authority to say that a law is made for a good end, such as the preservation of life. It must also tend toward that end, okay? That's important because many people will say, well, this is why we're, we're giving this law for this good end. The Puritans would say, oh, that's not good enough. It's not good enough just to give a reason it also has to be shown that it also tends toward that end as well. The preservation of life is a good end, but it must be proven that a specific life uh, law tends toward that end, and by simply stating that it does does not mean that it does. For example, in the debates between the bishops and the Puritans, there were uh, these certain ceremonial things that were being commanded. They were being commanded by the bishops, and the bishops in many cases gave what is a good end, the edification of the saints. So, yeah, look, we know, um, we know this stuff is kind of Roman. Eventually, we want to get past it, right? We want to get rid of it, but we're not there. And for the weaker of those in the Church of England, this stuff kind of edifies them and encourages them. So let's keep it, okay? So that's our good end for why you should cross, why you should kneel, why you should wear the surplus, why you should do all these Roman things for the edification of your brothers. However, it is not simply enough that you give a good reason. It must be proven that that tends toward the edification of the brothers. For example, Samuel Rutherford, Samuel Rutherford, Presbyterian, Scotch Presbyterian, 
uh, quoting 1 Corinthians 6.12, which says, All things, meaning all things indifferent, are lawful in themselves, but not all things are expedient. Okay? Quoting that, he says, In the means of worship, not only must we see what is lawful, but, it, but also what is profitable and conducing towards the end. So it's not enough for me as pastor to say, well, we're going to just start doing this in worship now, right? We're all just going to, oh man, we're all going to raise our hands in worship and you should just do it because Paul says we should raise holy hands and it's really just showing our love for God and all that stuff. And that's a good reason, so you should do it. You should say, well, okay, but how does this show my love for God maybe more than just singing with my hands down? Isn't it more just from my voice and my heart? Well, no, no, don't worry about it. It, This is my good reason. No, it has to tend towards that end. George Gillespie, another Scottish Presbyterian, he says of the Anglican bishops that uh, they thought all they had to do was give a reason for their commandments, but that if after that, if someone was still not satisfied in their conscience, then they're saying, well, that's contempt. I've given you a reason. You don't buy it. That's contempt. You're now guilty of contempt of a lawful authority. He says, one, they say they are blameless because they render a reason of that which they do, so that we may know the lawfulness of it. To this sufficient answer has been made already by one whose answers I may well produce. And now he quotes another Puritan, Robert Parker. And the quote is as follows. If this be true that all you have to do is give a good reason, then see that we end all the duty of bearing with the weak. Hmm. If all you have to do is give a reason for what you're doing, you basically abolish what Paul says is the duty of bearing with the weak. He says, What needed Paul to write so much about the scandal of eating meat sacrificed to idols? This one precept might have sufficed. Let the strong give a reason for his eating. In other words, if all you have to do is give a reason for what you're doing, then why didn't just Paul say that? He continues, It will be said that they are thought to be obstinate who after a reason given are still scandalized. Oh, you're obstinate. You are in, you are in contempt of authority because you're not submitting even though I've given you a reason. He says, but the answer is in readiness. They are rather thought to be obstinate in scandalizing who, perceiving the scandal to remain, notwithstanding of their reason given, yet for all that take not away the occasion of the scandal. In other words, the one who were, who were, who were guilty of scandal were actually the Anglican bishops who were just giving reasons, you're not, you're not agreeing to my reason, you don't agree with me, um, well, then you're, you're just the difficult one. Um, that's like the opposite of what Paul says in Romans 14. Each one is to be convinced in their own mind. Uh, what the bishops are saying, well, I'm convinced in my mind and I'm a lawful authority. So if you're not convinced, right, as opposed to Paul saying, be satisfied in your own mind, then you're just obstinate. You are guilty of contempt. And the reformers would say no. Gillespie continues, The reason which they give us commonly is will and authority. Or if at any time they give another reason, it is such a one 
as cannot clear nor resolve our consciences. Okay? So, in such a case, if it does not truly tend towards a good end, right, um, you do not have to render obedience because it, it, it would be blind obedience at a certain point. Now, at this point, we have to get a, a, a bit of a caveat, a bit of a caveat to kind of balance out what, what I've just said a little bit. On the one hand, we want to avoid blind obedience. We don't want to obey a lawful authority simply because they are a lawful, uh, an lawful authority or simply because they say so or even simply because they render us a reason. If we are not convinced that a certain commandment or rule tends toward the good end for which the law was made, we do not have to obey. Yet, on the other hand, pretty much all those guys that I would just read, that I just read to you, they would also acknowledge that there is a sense in which it is not always necessary that we absolutely know every reason for why a certain law or rule is given, or that we are always fully made known of and convinced of all of its particulars, okay? There is a qualified sense in which obedience and even faith, in a certain sense, can be called implicit, implicit. There's a sense in which it's not necessarily wrong to trust or even give rulers the benefit of the doubt at times, but that's not the same thing as blind trust, okay? For example, I think of myself as a pastor. There are many times when people in the church come up to me with a theological question and I give them a brief answer on that and they trust me as their pastor. They trust the answer that I have given. Maybe they don't say, well, how did you come to that conclusion entirely? They trust me. I'm their pastor, right? That's not blind obedience. And it's okay for, for that kind of trust in lawful authorities at other times. It doesn't mean you can't question the pastor, but neither is it blind obedience to trust them at times. We see this in other ways with civil government. For example, listen to what Theodore Beza says. It applies to other spheres as well, but I think it's very balanced. He, said, he asked the question, is a magistrate held responsible to render account of all his laws to his subjects? And how far are they to presume such laws to be just? So let me ask you guys, is the civil government held responsible to render account of all its laws to its subjects? Who says yes? Who says no? We'll see who's right, according to Beza. He says, I answer that he is not so held responsible. Nay, more, that it is fair that all virtuous subjects should regard their lords in the light of virtue and should not presume to suspect anything unjust concerning them, nay, that it is not becoming that men in private station should inquire over-curiously even concerning doubtful matters beyond their comprehension or station in life. So there's a sense in which it's okay and even good to give leaders of the benefit of the doubt. It's also okay to acknowledge that some men are, uh, they have expertise in a certain field. 
Now, we live in a day in which that is just absolutely abused. You have those who are like, well, we're just the experts, so just shut up and do what we tell you to. I have a degree, right? I, I saw this thing that I just abominated. Uh, it was this woman, and she was like, well, parents aren't experts in the education that their children need. And I'm like, you have a bachelor's degree and no children. Um, you think that qualifies you as an expert for what children need? I don't think so. So I'm not saying we need to bow blindly to the quote-unquote experts, okay? I, I, I totally get that. And yet there are true experts out there in certain fields. And sometimes you have to trust them. You simply do. For example, when I, send, when I render a certain translation of Greek from the pulpit, I have training and to some degree expertise more than the average person does who's sitting in the pew. For example, I might translate a certain view, a verb for certain reasons, and if I explained all those reasons to you, without the education that I have on things, you're not going to understand it. Not because you're too dumb, <laughs> okay? but because I'd have to teach you Greek before you can understand those things. For example, if you want to know, let's say you're like, oh, well, this verb here, it's not in the indicative, it's in the subjunctive, and it's in the present tense. Um, therefore, it, it, it implies what's called an aspectual nuance, that is, uh, it's a continuing action. But no, because verbs of motion, in some cases, prefer the present tense over the aorist, not in the indicative mood. Okay? Do you see my muscles? My Greek muscles just flashed right there, right? I had to learn that in school, but I do know things like that. And, and I don't necessarily always have to explain that every time I render a translation in the pulpit. Now, can you ask me? Absolutely. Should I be able to, as they say, uh, bring the cookies down on the lower shelf um, to, to help people understand? Yeah, especially if they're not convinced of the translation and, and, and whatever conclusion I'm coming to, they're not comfortable with, right? In such a case, they are owed an answer, but I don't always have to do that. Um, listen to what Beza said. He, he gets the balance of this. If, however, the conscience of some be at a loss, they can and are even under an obligation to examine, albeit discreetly and in a peaceful manner, what elements of reason and justice are to be found in the command by which they are bidden or forbidden to do something? For the word of the apostle abides, whatsoever is not of faith, that is, while the conscience is in doubt, whether that is being done justly or not, is sin. Okay? So, so all that to say, we never want to render blind obedience but there is a sense in which you can even say, and we'll, we'll talk about um, implicit blind faith. We'll talk about this uh, in a few more lectures, um, the Roman Catholic understanding of faith versus the Protestant biblical understanding of faith, where they see faith as um, essentially ignorance, as a lack of knowledge. Protestants see it as having knowledge, right? So we'll look into that. But even then, there's still a sense in which we can say, you can look at Turretin, you can look at all these guys, in certain qualified senses, faith is still to some degree implicit. For example, Turretin says, we do not deny that faith can be called in a certain sense implicit. 
both in children and in the uninstructed, uh, uninstructed who have only an obscure knowledge, okay? And in the more advanced, in whom the light is always mixed with darkness. But the question is whether faith in its conception includes knowledge, if not a full, still a true and certain knowledge in its own order. The question is whether that assent is blind, destitute of all knowledge, so that it may be better defined by ignorance, and to believe is to assent to things unknown. That's what they deny. That's the Roman Catholic conception of faith. For Protestants, it may not be a a full, perfect knowledge, but it is a true knowledge of certain things, right? Um, And yet, um, among children or the uninstructed, there is a sense in which they will trust more those who are in authority over them. Furthermore, we can say that there are even times when those who are in authority cannot or ought not disclose their reasons for for certain things. For example, for the civil state, there are matters of national security. There are times when um, it's, it's not towards the good of the state that certain things are revealed. Now, that should be governed by law, right? There should be checks and balances. And yet, I think we would all say the state should, at some level, have some kinds of secrets, especially in in, in matters of war or even um, espionage. It's funny, when I was out in Van, there was a brother there, an older gentleman who was retired. He and his wife were visiting the church, and it was potluck afterwards, and I was talking to him. And I said, so uh, what do you do? And he gave some like really vague answer about like the government or something, like a contractor. I don't know what he said. And I thought he didn't want to bore me. I thought it was like... Oh, he must be like really boring. He doesn't want to bore me. And I said, um, "Oh, but what do you do?" And he goes, I, "I'm an, uh, I'm an, I'm an ex- expert in my subject matter." And I thought, like, "Oh, it must be really boring. It's like really boring stuff." He doesn't. He's being polite. And I said, "What's your subject matter?" <laughs> and he said, "I can't tell you." <laughs> um, there are some things like that, and that's okay in the civil government. Um, there, there are times in, in, or well, let me read Samuel Rutherford, okay? The guy we just read saying you never want to render blind obedience, he also says, indeed, it cannot be denied that there are arcana imperis, or secrets of the state that are not to be communicated um, to, I don't know why the word pastor is there. You should probably not tell them to pastors in many cases, Um, I think it should just be the common person, in which rulers have a supremacy, okay? So that's why I'm saying you want to read all these guys to have a balanced view. They're not saying, like, you have to totally let us know all your reasons for why you're doing something. Um, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine. We can see this in other spheres as well. He said he told one of his little kids they wanted to watch uh, some kind of a show, um, and it was not overtly trying to, uh, you know, give the child modern crazy dogma that's out there, but it kind of was kind of like that. And if you were an adult, you could pick up on that, but the kid wanted to watch it, and she said, well, why can't I watch it, Daddy? He told me I I couldn't tell her why (laughs) to protect her. There are some things you just can't know right now at your age because it's not good for you to know them. 
Um, and actually, I like the way he explained it. He quoted Ephesians 5.12, where Paul says, it is shameful to uh, even speak of the things that they do in secret. And he said, you know, sweetheart, um, the Bible says that some things are just shameful to talk about. And so I won't even talk to you about this because it's shameful, but I just need you to obey me on this. Um, and she's like, okay, daddy, right? That's not blind obedience. There's a reason behind it. He gave her a good explanation, even for the secrecy, um, but that's, that's totally fine. I think of myself as a pastor as well. There are a lot of things that I am privy to um, that, that are not to be shared, right? Um, there are a lot of things, there might be a certain situation in which I can't tell someone um, the entirety of the reason for something else because maybe something is held in secrecy. Obviously, not in cases where a crime has been committed or there's a threat to someone's life, but there are matters which are not public, which people often share with their pastors. Um, and there might be a time in which I can say, you know, for this and that, I can't really go into details, um, but I, this is what I want to do, right? Um, and still, that, that's okay. That's appropriate um, in various things. So all this to say, we should always oppose blind obedience, there's nothing wrong, however, with a reasonable trust of someone in authority, nor is it wrong even to give um, authorities the benefit of the doubt. A good incentive for rulers to rule wisely is because their people will come to trust and respect them and will not want to be overly curious about every single thing they do. If you are not a good ruler and your people don't trust you, they will suspect more and more of you. One brother writes, it should be apparent that if subordinates have a rational trust in their superiors, the less the superiors need to pedantically instruct their subordinates in the reasons for their rules. However, if a subordinate has a grounded case of conscience against the command of the superior, and it is not an emergency or matter of life and death when the superior must act for the subordinate's good regardless, then the superior ought to make clear sufficient reasons as to the moral necessity of the command so as to persuade their conscience, if at all possible. Okay? So all this to say, you don't have to render blind obedience. In fact, you ought not to do so, the confession says. Um, but there is still a place for trusting those who are in authority, right? That's, we want to have a balance there on that. Um, you might also choose to obey in certain cases, even though a liberty is taken away for the sake of the gospel. Um, there might be a, a, a reason in which you allow yourself to, to have a certain liberty taken away um, for the sake of the gospel, and that might be done as well. And let me just say this here. We all agree when it's a, a wholesome law for the most part, even though you don't agree, entirely with it, you should still obey. We all agree that there are times when people become tyrants, and it's even okay to defend yourself and take up arms. The in-between is going to be a lot of spectrums, a lot of people with different conscience of things. And let me just say this to you, okay, especially as we've had this debate recently um, with all the COVID stuff. Be very careful 
if you think this is tending towards um, the, the taking away of liberties and things like that, right? Be very careful of calling those who disagree with you bootlickers. You are just a blind dog submitting. Maybe you don't agree with them, but they might be sincerely convinced in their conscience that they ought to render obedience. On the other case, if you want to give obedience, be very careful of just throwing a blanket appeal to Romans 13 and calling those rebellious. We need, to, uh, we need to have a lot of patience with one another and respect various opinions. Um, uh, a really good example of this um, is there's an HBO series. Most HBO series can't be recommended because they have all kinds of things in them, but this one's pretty good. Uh, it's a series on John Adams, and it shows a lot of the debates uh, of the Continental Congress of when do we finally become independent? And you had those who were like the firebrands, John Adams being one, who was like, let's just, let's declare independence, let's do it. And then you had others, like a man named John Dickinson, who himself was a patriot, who went on to fight in the Revolutionary War, but who didn't think it was time to declare independence yet. And they often kind of threw barbs at each other. Um, In fact, uh, John Adams called Dickinson a Quaker. You Quaker, which is, you know, Whoa, um, because they're, you know, pacifists. Um, John Dickinson, later on, when the vote for independence came, he absented himself so that um, it would pass unanimously. But when it passed, he put on his uniform and went to go fight. He was still very much a patriot and a founding father. In his conscience, he was not convinced, though, that it was the right time yet to move forward. And there's this last scene where Adams talks to him, and, and, he's, and, and John Dickinson says, I will never go against my principles and my conscience. And Adams has kind of softened, softened, and he says something to the effect of, a man of your principles should never have to try to go against his conscience. Where they had kind of, they realized, we both love these colonies, We both want liberty, but we have a disagreement here, and they showed respect, and I think we should have that, especially with the household of Christ, because between here and here is a whole spectrum of things, and you want to be very careful of just blanket denunciations, right? doesn't mean nobody's right. It's, it's, It's however you feel. No, someone could be, we'd all agree, the more you move over here, it's really verging on on tyranny, Right? but also don't bash your brother or sister because of where they're at in their conscience, all right? Any questions before we end?